0: What a great word for us this morning. I love that kind of liturgy that's in there, that redemption has a name, victory has a name, the word has a name, and it's Jesus. So so good to see all of you this morning, and I know some of you are looking a little bit tired. I think you might have stayed up last night. I don't know what you were staying up for, but I did too. So uh, it's what happens sometimes. And i got a smile on my face, so that's good too. (laughs) This fall we've been looking at what it means to live on mission. Um, Every one of us wants a life that has meaning, that has purpose, a life of significance. And the proposition of the scriptures is that we find a life of significance when we begin to live our lives as own mission. And so a great example that we've been following is the life of Paul. First believed that his mission was to put a stop to Christianity and then of course the Lord got a hold of his life and we've been in the middle of Acts uh, following Paul on his second missionary journey. He was sent from the church at Antioch with his brother in Christ Silas. They preached the gospel. They sensed the Lord's leadership, saw a vision, went to Macedonia with Luke and with Timothy. They preached the gospel, discipled believers and planted churches across Macedonia and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And they faced opposition in every city where they went. And then Paul went to preach in Athens, which was a totally different situation uh, there. But today we're going to be in Acts 18 and verse 1 says that uh, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And so we are going to be following Paul through Corinth this, Corinth this morning. In fact, the sermon says to Corinth and beyond, because he does trail off at the end, and we'll look at that. But when we read that Paul came to Corinth, you can't let the Hollywood imagery fill your mind. You know, he didn't go there with total confidence. He didn't go there with this uh, unwavering joy or peace and saying, whatever we have to deal with, whatever we have to face, I'll enjoy it, Now i have pleasure, and that kind of thing. He didn't go to Corinth with the wind at his back. Paul arrives in Corinth dejected. He's not satisfied when he walks through the gates there. He had gone from city to city in Macedonia. He had been railroaded out of town from these cities. And it was probably not too hard for him to start thinking, God, do I not have a place here? Did I misunderstand the vision? I thought you wanted me in Macedonia, but they keep running me out of town everywhere I go. Well, Corinth is about 50 miles south-southwest of Athens. And we know Paul's feelings when he arrives there because he writes them down for us. Uh, he reflects back and he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. He's reflecting and he says in his letter that he writes to the church at Corinth. In Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You know, sometimes we think that the Bible is not applicable because you think it's just a, a, you know, a feel-good book. Uh, But that's because we don't study it. Let's just be honest. Have any of you ever done something you felt like was the right thing to do, and maybe even that God had called you to do it, only to feel like the rug got jerked out from under you? And you think, what in the world? You know, and you just feel dejected, derailed, depressed, whatever it might be. Well, Paul felt the same thing when he was in service to the Lord. Now, you and I have this perfect hindsight. And we can say with confidence, Paul, what are you thinking, brother? God is using all of this for great victory, you know, for great triumph. And we can see what's happening. So we say, Paul, stick to it. Don't let your emotions get to you in this moment. We can say with confidence, we know how this ends. And this light and momentary affliction is producing for you an eternal weight far surpassing or far beyond all comparison. So stick to it, brother. Well, church, I want to say to you before we even study this passage that I know how we can come in here, we can clean ourselves up, put smiles on our faces, give firm handshakes. And at the same time, life has just been beating you up. And you feel like I've been trying to serve God, but it's just... It does. I don't feel like it because I feel like life is against me. The world is against me. And sometimes you think, I'm I'm not even sure it's worth it anymore. You know, even the good things I try to do for the Lord seem to, you know, be failing. And so this morning, I want to remind you, you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. If you're joining us by television or through the Internet, you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses in this room and in glory that right now are just cheering you on pushing you forward live the life run the race that's what's happening so Paul lived on mission and he's running the race and in running the race he finds himself in Corinth and Corinth is an ancient city of Greece Um, it's actually the site of the isthmus of Corinth you know how many times I practice that word because I don't say it very often isthmus all right well Greece is uh, geographically split into several different distinct land masses. And to the south-southwest is the Peloponnese, the, uh, the peninsula that's surrounded by water on almost all, all sides. has one land bridge that connects it to Maine, mainland Greece, which is the Isthmus of Corinth, okay? And uh, so it's a pretty significant city because it protects that landmass to connect this country together. It also has, it's a major port city. Two ports, one on this side and one on this side. And so in the ancient world, it was a very strategic place. And what would happen at at its most narrow point, the isthmus is three and a half miles uh, wide, I guess you would say. So from one port to the next, three and a half miles across land. So what would happen is the ships would come in um, uh, from the Italian coast, from the Adriatic Sea. They would come down, they would dock there at the port at uh, Corinth. And then the Corinthian workforce would, would take the boats, not what's on the boat, but they would take the boats and they would transfer them across three and a half miles of this. I don't know how they did that. I'm imagining it was something like that. But it was um, they had built a road just for that, to transfer the boats so that they could get it to the Aegean Sea and to the Mediterranean Sea. So this is a real strategic city, a, a critical city. And at the time, it is the largest and most cosmopolitan city in Greece, And because of the commercial activity, it's very prosperous, it's known as a luxurious place, but what comes with that is a terrible culture. Um, Corinthian is actually a word that kind of uh, becomes a proverbial descriptor of sexual immorality. So when something kind of fell into sexual immorality, they called it, it was Corinthianized, that's what happened. Because if you travel to Corinth today, you can actually see the ruins of the ancient city. There was an earthquake, so they moved the city, and you can see where Paul was. You can actually see the Bema that you read about later in this chapter, where uh, he uh, stood before the proconsul there. But if you go there, you'll see that at the top of a mountain, there's the the fortress of Corinth, the Acro-Corinthus. And at the center of that, the most strategic place is this temple to Aphrodite. And there would be a thousand prostitutes working in the temple to Aphrodite whenever Paul visited there. So it was, and he would have known that. He would have known, that's what the city was famous for. Maybe a little bit like Las Vegas, how we think of their connection to sexual immorality. And, you know, the, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Same thing in Corinth. That's what it was known for in the first century. So with that, I, we're going to look at Acts 18, verses 2 through 11. And he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. Solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Tideus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, months, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul was committed to living on mission, even when the circumstances were not wonderful. Whenever he experienced tight resources, he kept on living for the Lord. When he faced opposition, he pressed forward. When he found himself alone, he sought out companions. So he discovered God always provided in the midst of his need. Living on mission is not just for missionaries. And I hope you figured that out through this series. I'm not just giving you the way that missionaries are supposed to live. You and I are called to use our personal experiences to tell who Jesus is, recognizing he's always with us. This is a message for you and for me to live on mission, to use our personal experiences to tell who Jesus is, recognizing he's always with us. And I'm sure you might think, but what experiences do I have? Well, as believers who are living on mission, we use our personal experiences. And what I mean by that is our vocation, or um, our interests, or our influence, or our activities. We use those for building God's kingdom. Verse 2 says that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he went and sought, or he found Priscilla and Aquila. Rhyming names, you know. But a married couple. They came here from Rome. We know they came because they were expelled from Rome, as the whole Jewish community was, by Claudius in 49 AD. So that brought them here. And they're likely a well-to-do couple, a lot of resources, and they're also evidently believers in Jesus already. And so they became loyal friends and helpers for Paul. In fact, Paul writes to the church at Romans in Romans 16, and this gives you a clue how significant Priscilla and Aquila become to Paul. In verse 3 of Romans 16, Paul says, Greet Prisca, or Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. So Priscilla and Aquila, they put their lives on the line for Paul. He owed a debt of gratitude to him. But not only that, F.F. Bruce points out, their services to the Christian cause evidently far exceeded their personal services to Paul. Every church of the Gentiles owes them a debt of gratitude. So Aquila and Priscilla... They have a tent-making business. That's what they do. And we learned for the first time that Paul was also a tent-maker by trade. Probably meant that he worked with leather. That's what they would do to make these tents. To tan it, to stretch it, to sew it together, whatever you do to make a tent. So Paul would support himself as a tent-maker. That way, when he went into a city and he preached the gospel, he didn't depend on their resources. He was able to provide for himself um, and Because we know specifically Paul did not want to look like he was profiting from the gospel. He was very specific about that. So he worked hard for a living, but it also gave him an outlet for ministry. That's where he built relationships probably. That's where he met folks that he talked to. And as we read about Paul, and uh, it says that Silas and Timothy, um, as we read about them and their life on mission, I think we can easily dismiss the scripture as not being applicable to us. Because we say, well, I'm not a missionary, I'm I'm not, uh, you know, leaving here, I'm not a traveling missionary, an incarnational uh, missionary, so it doesn't really apply to me. Or maybe you think, you know, this is for the preachers, the pastors, the church staff, the clergy, doesn't apply to me. But Jesus is calling every one of us to live on mission. Priscilla and Aquila proved to be significant members of the early church, but they are not traveling missionaries. They're not pastors and preachers and teachers and evangelists. They are lay leaders. They are business people, tent makers, that saw their lives intersect with the kingdom of God. And they are devoted followers of Jesus who see themselves as living on mission. As I read about them, I thought about so many people that I know uh, that have been significant lay leaders for the sake of the kingdom. They haven't worked in ministry per se or Uh, They're not ordained or they're not missionaries, but even people in this church. In fact, I thought of somebody specific. I thought of Betty Jo Craft and her late husband, Ira. I did not know Ira, but I know Ira's legacy. Um, Betty Jo Craft is a faithful member of our church, prayer warrior friend, and uh, her late husband, Ira, was active here. And when they were younger, Ira worked for the Butler Shoe Company, and uh, they were living in New England. That's where they were working. And they were attending a church in New England. And at this point in their life, God began to stir in their hearts the the need to evangelize New England and to plant churches and to support churches there. And so this is at the height of Ira's career. And at that point, God starts to do something, and they make a decision. They change directions. They end up in Georgia. And he meets uh, Cecil B. Day, uh, who... uh, Had a lot of resources, and uh, Ira introduced Cecil, Mr. Day, to New England and the needs of the churches up there. And he established a foundation, and for 31 years, Ira and Betty Joe strongly advocated for evangelical work in New England as lay leaders. From what I can tell, you can't find a church, a Baptist church in New England, that cannot trace back the influence on their life to Ira and Betty Joe Craft for what they did for the kingdom as lay leaders. Well, as believers in Jesus Christ, God is calling each of us to live on mission. We use our personal experiences. Maybe it's just sitting in a location and listening to God. What can I do here? Well, Paul wasn't just a tent maker, letting the day pass without meaning. I'm sure he used it for influence, as did Priscilla and Aquila. Well, you can do the same thing in your job or your studies, uh, or your activities during the week. That's what living on mission is all about. It's not necessarily doing different things, but it's taking the things we're already doing and doing them in a different way. As a matter of fact, I was thinking, that th- this is the way I'm going to put it. If you want your life to count, if you want a life of meaning, a life um, of significance, it is not about what you do, but it's about how you do it, And for whom you are doing it. Did you catch that? It's not about what you do. But it's about how you do it. And for whom uh, you are doing it. Or to whom. So all of a sudden your day in the cubicle or behind the cash register or at the desk can have a kingdom purpose. You have the ability to influence co-workers. Classmates. Customers for the sake of the kingdom. You have the ability to live a life that's distinguished From the rest of the world. Because you're living life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't necessarily mean you whip out a track every day. Maybe you do. But it does mean that you live as a witness in the workplace, the marketplace, the classroom, wherever you find yourself in your neighborhood. You work as unto the Lord. And you open your eyes to see what he's doing and say, how can I join? So living on mission is not just for missionaries. It's for each of us. We are called to use our personal experiences for his kingdom. But also, we are to be committed to tell who Jesus is. Verse 3 gives us or clues us into the fact that Paul works hard during the week. But then on the Sabbath, he's going to the synagogue to teach. It says, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath. And trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So work hard during the week. then on the Sabbath he's going in to do what he's been doing. Speaking to to, uh, the Jews first. Preaching, proclaiming, um, explaining, proving. And so God provides for Paul in this moment though. Through his companions Silas and Timothy. Silas and Timothy um, have been in Macedonia. Where they were supporting the local churches there. And now all of a sudden he's sent for them. They come. And they come to Corinth and it appears they bring financial support with them uh, From those churches in Macedonia now, they're sending funds so that Paul can do what? It says in the scripture here, in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy come down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. It seems that Philippi, if you read through the New Testament, Philippi is the church that decided to fund his mission work in Corinth, and that's what they do. Well, clearly we need all people to live on mission. But there is a need for some to serve exclusively in ministry and missions. That's why we set certain people apart. It helps to advance the kingdom and to mobilize the church whenever we're allowed to have pastors and a staff and missionaries who are able to devote themselves entirely to the kingdom work. And, you know, that's why we as Southern Baptists, we have specific seasons of giving for missions. Of course, you can do it year-round. But uh, here in just a couple of weeks, you'll start hearing about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. That's the season for Southern Baptists where all of a sudden we come together as Southern Baptist churches all around the world. And we give so that missionaries can stay on the field and not come home and have to fundraise. And we say, you stay focused on the work. We'll contribute to what you're doing. And it's proved to be, a very, it's proved to be incredibly successful, in, as a matter of fact. And in a lot of ways, we're carrying out the uh, legacy of the Philippian church when we contribute to that kind of mission effort. So Paul, once again, meets opposition. In fact, in verse 6, if you read it in the NIV, maybe you have that version, it says they became abusive. So they do start to attack. Now, tolerance is the highest virtue of our day. In fact, it's become a real politically charged word, tolerance. Now, you can think that these Corinthians are out of uh, control because they turn to violence because they disagree with him, right? I totally agree with that. They're out of control. As Christians we value tolerance. and I'm going to clarify though: We tolerate people. We should always tolerate people. We're called to love all people. We're called to show hospitality and grace to all people. We are called to be kind to one another, to love our enemies. We are called to care for the needs of every person. That's what the church of Jesus Christ should be known for. We don't treat people poorly because we disagree with them. Now this past week, we've dealt with that in our country, right? The man in Florida who decided to mail bombs for whatever reason. Thank God they didn't go off. And then, of course, in Pittsburgh, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath, while they're worshiping, Decides to attack. All because he disagrees with people. We should be known as tolerant people because of how we apply this virtue toward all people. That's what Christians should be known for. But we are not to tolerate all ideas. Okay, that's where we draw the line. Every idea is not equal. Every idea is not valid. Every idea is not truthful. That's why we disagree with the ideas that have been promoted this week in very significant fashion so although we tolerate people we do not tolerate all people's ideas and in some ways it's helpful that the Corinthians were offended by Paul's message not that they retaliated the Corinthian Jews but because it shows they recognized he was bringing a truth claim and they disagreed with him in Athens people were so tolerant that they just treated him like entertainment when he spoke they didn't even get up in arms they didn't get angry because they just tolerated all ideas Well, when we preach Christ crucified, it is offensive because it is a truth claim. It's attached to that idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by him. That's offensive because it's exclusive, but it's truth, so we don't water it down. Well, Paul turned his attention from the synagogue to the Gentile community. In verse 7 and 8, we find the first converts uh, in Corinth, uh, this Tadeus Justus. His name was probably Gaius Tideus Justus, because we know that Paul refers to him later. And there's also, he was a a God-fearing Greek who happened to own a home next to the synagogue. And then there's also this Crispus, who was a Jewish lay leader in the synagogue. But he believed and joined the church. We know Paul baptized those two men personally. He didn't baptize anybody else there, but those two men he did. He writes about it in 1 Corinthians. So verse 5 says, Paul was solemnly testifying to the Jews and the Greeks, to give testimony is simply to share what you've heard, what you've seen, what you've experienced, what you believe and know to be true. And that is our responsibility as followers of Jesus, to testify to what we, we've heard, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what we believe and know to be true. 2 Kings tells an interesting story about a time when ancient Samaria was surrounded and they were starving inside. The king was trying to decide, do we we just surrender because everybody's going to die? Well, God miraculously intervened, and the king didn't even know it. He routed the enemies where they just left, but they left all their stuff there. Well, outside of the city, there were these four lepers, uh, men with leprosy that were there because they had leprosy. And uh, they decided to go check out the tents, and they found nobody's there. But they found all this food and drink, and they ate and they drank, and then they went to the next tent. And they found more food, and they just ate. And at one point, they're sitting in a tent, and they're thinking, and they're just eating and drinking, and one of them says, oh, oh. we are doing something evil here. There are people starving inside those city walls. And here, we're just taking all of this for ourselves. You know what? It's a great message for Christians. Whenever we take the abundant life, and we just hoard it for ourselves, never considering there are people that do not know the way, do not know that redemption has a name, and it's Jesus. Do not know that the Word has a name, and it's Jesus. So our responsibility is to share faithfully. And it's up to God how they respond, up to God and them. So to testify of what we know about Jesus, that's an awesome responsibility. It ought to be seen as a joyous privilege, but we just get frozen because of fear or because of inexperience. Let me remind you, we are just called to share what we've heard, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what we believe and know to be true. We don't have to defend every truth claim, but we do need to do that. The rest is up to God. So Paul's ministry to the Gentiles in Corinth is a success, but I imagine he's disheartened because, once again, he's rejected by this Jewish community. So Paul here is living on mission. He's experienced tight resources. He's faced opposition, and he's found himself alone, but he discovers he has not been alone. Verses 9 and 10 says Paul receives a vision in Corinth. Paul came to Corinth in weakness, fear, and trembling. We all know what it's like to be down. We all know what it's like to be out. And in those moments, do you doubt God? Do you think, have you forgotten about me? Do you know I'm here? Where are you? I'm trying here to serve you, or trying to live the Christian life, or just to be able to survive, but I feel like I've been abandoned. And in that vision, Paul is reminded, Jesus tells him what he told the disciples before he left, I'm with you always. I'll never leave you. And then he says, and don't stop talking. You keep sharing. Don't be silent. After this vision, verse 11 says, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. That's longer than he stayed anywhere. Uh, but he stayed there. And, um, uh, you know, you wonder in that moment do you think that God make it easy at that point? Well, we know he didn't. We're not going to read the whole thing now. But the next part of this chapter talks about how Paul is uh, dragged out, you know, put out in front of the uh, proconsul of Achaia. Um, and a miraculous thing happens, though, really. Paul being brought out before him, uh, Gallio um, does not bring judgment against Paul or the Christians, which really paves the way for the gospel to spread or to continue to spread through the Roman Empire. Well, here's the deal. If you feel abandoned by God, you need to be reminded that Jesus is with you. He will never leave you. Sometimes we sing songs that sound like we have to beg God to come. But no, he draws near to us. We're just supposed to draw near to him. He is always there. He is always available. Let me conclude. I'm going to read to you verses 18 through 22. It says, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Centria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I'll return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. That's the end of the second missionary journey. It's right there. He returns to his home church. The next two weeks, we're going to look at the third missionary journey and what he does He goes back to Ephesus where he says, I'll come. Where he left Aquila and Priscilla. If God allows it, I'll come back. And he does and spends an incredible time there. So we use our experiences. um, uh, We use our experiences for the sake of the kingdom. Remember, the idea here is that we don't do something different. It's, It's not about what we do. It's about how we do it and for whom we're doing it. In every area of our life. And then we also... Um, testify to what we know and we've seen and we've heard and we've experience, experienced and we believe and know to be true. And wherever we go, we're reminded that Jesus is with us. That is how you and I live on mission um, with God. Today, maybe some of you are feeling like you, you are abandoned, that like God's not with you. Well, maybe that's because you've never stepped into relationship with him. Well, God's extending an invitation to you. It's not something you have to do. It's simply something you have to believe that Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood so that you could be forgiven of your sins, so that you could be in a relationship with him. Don't put that off. Today's the day. If God's speaking to your heart, you respond. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for the legacy that we have in Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke on this missionary journey and what they've done and how we can still see the effects of their ministry in Europe. Lord, I pray now that you would help us to join with you To live on mission we pray for those who need to respond that today they would it's in jesus name we pray amen if god's speaking to your heart maybe it's to join our church maybe it's for a prayer need or maybe it's to respond to the gospel today the invitation is open to you i'm going to invite you to stand as our choir sings you respond Give you just a couple of announcements I'm so glad to see you I hope you have a wonderful day in case you're not aware uh, to this evening we have our fall festival it's from 5 to seven thirty, 30 and uh, you're all invited to be here but you should also be inviting folks to be here it's a free event of course they have some things that cost us like food etc but y'all plan on being there for that but one thing you need to know is you better get your car out of the parking lot out here they've got the Basha car and you don't want them to trade your car with that one So as soon as we finish here, if you'll make sure your car is out of the parking lot, they're going to get set up for that. Um, If you're a new member, you've joined the church recently, you've never been through our new member class, uh, that class is happening on November 11th, and we want you to uh, RSVP this week. Let us know you're going to be there, Um, and so you can do that through the church office. Um, I I got an uh, email this week, Chris Causey, who was uh, part of our church on staff here and planted a church in, uh, in Boston, uh, they, uh, it's incredible, it's, it's going great. They have uh, some Sundays where they're up over a couple hundred, and it's called Encounter Church. And he just wanted me to remind uh, the church of how grateful he is for our connection there, for the resources we gave there, for our prayers, and ask us to continue to pray. Uh, you know, as a new church plant moves into the Christmas season, it's such a critical time for reaching a community. And it's in the New England area, Betty Joe, so we're going to be praying for uh, Encounter Church uh, even this week. you're a college student wherever you are there's lunch and Bible study so you be sure and join them over there in 1420 and I'm so glad to see you stand and we will pray and be dismissed father um, what a delight it is even for me to to be here in worship with this congregation God and we thank you uh, that we can depend on you for every need we thank you that you are a great and glorious God who knows every situation we face and provide for it. Lord, and we thank you that you are now sending us out on mission, and I pray that you would help us to live faithfully for you. We have so many ways that we can do that, but Father, help us just to make ourselves available, and then you have your way in our hearts. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.